Welcome to Good Faith Reads. I'm your host, Zach Dawes Jr., Managing Editor for News and Opinion at Good Faith Media. Good Faith Reads is a short podcast released twice a month in which we focus on one of our book authors at Good Faith Media. We've published more than 100 titles under our Nurturing Faith book imprint, and we invite you to check them out at goodfaithmedia.org bookstore. Today's guest is Colin Harris, author of Keys for Everyday Theologians, Unlocking the Doors for Faith-Seeking Understanding. He is joining us remotely today from Georgia. Colin, thanks for carving out time to visit, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the privilege to be here. Tell our listeners in one sentence, what is the book about? One sentence. I suppose <laughs> you can do two if you'd like. <laughs> okay. It's easier to say what it's not about. <laughs> I, I guess I would say that it's uh, about the theology that we all engage in as people of faith. So was there a critical life experience or maybe set of experiences that shaped your need or your desire or decision to write the book? Um, some of our listeners will know that you taught theology and religious education for years. I assume that that was a significant influence, but maybe just share a little bit about, you know, how you came to this point. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. That uh, A project of this kind is, is probably the result of those years of work and things I've learned from my traveling companions during that journey. Um, I guess over the years, I was able to notice and learn from students that there's some very basic concepts that play into the world work of theology, particularly the theology that's done informally by all of us as we try to understand our faith and communicate about it. Uh, the, the formal theology that we're all aware of is, is the vast accumulation of, of tomes of interpretation and so on through the centuries. Uh, the informal theology is what I was able to observe in the classroom and outside the classroom much. And that informal theology struck me as being equally important to the formal theology, particularly as it lives and works in the, in the faith community, where uh, people grow in their faith and its understanding, and where they help each other grow in their faith and understanding. So the keys that, that are sort of the outline of the book uh, represent uh, some things that began to occur to me over the years and in retirement, at least in additional reflection, have come to be uh, incredibly important as subtle, sometimes uh, conceptual distinctions that make the difference between whether a person's quest for understanding faith can move in a healthy direction or whether it might get stuck in a, in a less healthy one. So I guess that large pattern of experience was the, uh, uh, was the catalyst, maybe, in the, in the context. And I'm very much in debt to all of those people who shared the journey with me, uh, many of them my teachers, uh, more of them my students who became my teachers, of, uh, of this task that we all share. So a lot of your you know, vocational time was spent in the classroom, but you've obviously been very involved in the local church context. So who, who do you envision as kind of the target audience? Is it undergraduate religion classes? Is it local church context? A little bit of both and maybe other settings? I guess a little bit of both would be the best way to describe it. It's, it's really targeted more toward a willingness than it is a particular setting. Uh, the willingness to think carefully about faith and to explore uh, some of its implications as life moves on into new challenges. Uh, there are people who I think are, are coming to now understand the value of doing that, 
rather than simply being content with the formulas that might have accompanied them uh, along the way. Uh, I found that, of course, in the classroom, there were uh, the range of students was a range all the way from the reluctance to entertain anything new on one end. And the other end was those who had uh, broken free from some background things and were eager to embrace anything that was new. Uh, in between all of that are people who I think value their heritage and the, the uh, traditional foundations that that heritage has provided but at the same time are becoming aware of the growing edge of the faith life and theological reflection and want to find a way to be a steward of that heritage while at the same time being responsible to some of the challenges that might lie ahead. So it's, it's really just a, almost a targeted toward a perspective or a willingness than it is to a particular setting, uh, it seems to me. We'll be right back in a few moments with more Good Faith Reads. Arms folded, feet pacing the floor. It's written all over your face. The body doesn't hide our true feelings. It disregards promises made to keep the peace or just keep it to ourselves. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. We're giving our listeners a hand when discerning body language. That's our focus in season three. The church is called the body of Christ, so what does our body language say about perennial and pressing hot-button issues? What's costing us an arm and a leg? Who do we give the cold shoulder and keep at arm's length? When have we put our foot in our mouth or turned a blind eye? Why are we still sitting on our hands? Where do we toe the line? And why is the kingdom that is coming not on the tip of our tongues? In season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll address these questions in eight episodes, and I hope you'll be all ears. The Raceless Gospel Podcast is looking at body language. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Episode one drops on May 5th. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Reads. Today, we're joined remotely by Colin Harris, author of the Good Faith Media book, Keys for Everyday Theologians. I'm Zach Dawes, Jr. of Good Faith Media, your host for this episode. Colin, could you tell us a little bit about your approach to writing the book? This is another thing we love to hear from our authors, especially for listeners who might want to do a, a writing project, book, or otherwise for themselves. Did you set weekly goals? Did you give daily word count mandates to yourself? Did you face writer's block? Maybe just give listeners a little insight into to the book process for, from your perspective. I guess I could serve your listeners by being a good model of someone who's never done this before and <laughs> learned by doing some things. I'm not a very organized or disciplined person. And so when I retired and lost the structure that provided me with what little organization and discipline I had, uh, I, I was in sort of a, a place where I could decide my own procedure. Uh, doing this project uh, found me uh, using retirement time to reflect and think and, and write. Uh, I didn't follow a particular regimen of getting up at a certain hour of the morning and work for a certain number of hours, but I, I did have the, the freedom and flexibility to think about it just about all the time and to return to it whenever there was time. And so I, I was able to, to work in a rather uh, 
scattered pattern, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. But um, but that that was working for me in the circumstance that I had. I think if I were doing it again, I would do a few more of the things that you suggested of structuring the process and uh, setting goals and, and uh, timetables and that kind of thing. In his endorsement of your book, Greg Deloach, who you know, he's dean of Mercer University's McAfee School of Theology, he observed that theology is a lifelong process of refining, changing, and growing. And he notes that your book reminds readers that theology as a shared journey is more about formation than information. Could you maybe reflect a little about this conception of theology as process and more formation than information that's carried out in community? Um, how, how does that come out in your book? Or if, if it doesn't explicitly come out, how did that inform your shaping of it? I'm very grateful to Greg Deloach for, for seeing that in the book and giving it good articulation, which he did in his uh, uh, endorsement. Um, I was very fortunate to have had a seminary experience many years ago that, uh, that introduced theology uh, less as a body of doctrine to believe and more as a, a way of thinking to engage. And so in that context, this was many years ago, uh, theology for me was a kind of a combination of the accumulated wisdom of the church through the years of understanding what uh, the Christian faith, in our case, uh, uh, means. But at the same time, seeing it as having a growing edge that was always uh, making an effort to, to bring a stewardship of that past into some decisions of the present that would serve a vision for the future. And, and therefore, uh, thinking theologically uh, actually was a companion to, to learning theology in, in the sense of absorbing content versus uh, honing a perspective of thinking. And, and in that sense, in that place, and then over the years, uh, theology has continued for me to be at least a, a process of uh, continual refinement of the understandings, beliefs, and concepts that accompany the faith journey as a covenant relationship. And so it's uh, always with a growing edge, uh, always with an appreciation of the accumulation from the past, but uh, an avoidance of of rigidifying that uh, in a way that would keep seeing its growing edge and and where it was leading. Um, I guess that would describe in something of a nutshell the, the perspective that guides my thinking theologically, and which was uh, intended to be a part of the theme of this book uh, as it kind of held the keys together. Well, as I was looking through your book in preparation for our interview today, I was reminded of some observations by Walter Rauschenbusch. And I, I would imagine many listeners know who he is, but he was a church historian who kind of became a social reformer and theological reformer, really. Um, I think embodying that faith-seeking understanding concept really well. Um, in his 1917 book, A Theology for the Social Gospel, he said, and I quote, If theology stops growing or is unable to adjust itself to its modern environment and to meet its present tasks, it will die, and many now regard it as dead, end quote. And yet a few pages later, he admits, quote, any demand for changes in Christian doctrine is sure to cause a quiver of apprehensiveness and distress, end quote. And as a result, he has this kind of funny quip that is, quote, every generation tries to put its doctrine on a high shelf where the children cannot reach it, end quote. Um, 
I kind of chuckled at, at rereading that and thinking about your book and what, what you're trying to get readers to, to think through. So kind of building on that concept about theology as a process, faith-seeking understanding, and the, the challenges that that brings for, for some and for, for many, could you reflect maybe on the role of humility in this whole process of, of learning, formulating, applying theological frameworks, and then maybe having to, to unlearn and, and tweak those. Mm-hmm. And really I'm thinking about humility on both sides from the person who's trying to help others think through their theological systems. And then also on the, the learning side of the humility that's required to have some of those presuppositions and long-held beliefs may be challenged in small ways or large ways. That's a wonderful way to frame that challenge that theology, I think, always always faces. Uh, Roush and Bush was quite a pioneer in theological work in his own time and uh, sort of a, a living model of, of the uh, growing edge of uh, theology as it, as it made a transition from an over-privatized kind of personal faith in the direction of being a community-oriented faith that embraces the corporate nature of faith and uh, its challenges. Um, We're in his debt uh, in many ways for for that. And I think he identified, and you have expressed wonderfully well, the the ongoing uh, challenge of that. There there always seems to be some resistance to any uh, pattern of thinking that challenges what we have held to be central in our own thinking. Uh, and and uh, in, in that context, uh, that, that resistance needs to be handled carefully so that it doesn't turn back into increasing defensiveness, but is at least willing to open the possibility of looking at something else. And the place of humility, which you spoke of, uh, is, is key uh, everywhere there and uh, refers to, to the need we all have intellectually and theologically to, to understand that our understanding is always partial. We are never there. We haven't arrived in the full and complete understanding of anything. And, and that kind of humility uh, allows us to, to be patient with one another uh, and, and to uh, help one another in the, the growth process uh, rather than arguing over who's right about something uh, if we can embrace a, a way of saying, let's share what ideas we have with each other and come to a, a better understanding together of what, what we might think. Sometimes that gets difficult because the, the, the security of certainty is very, uh, very, uh, we're all vulnerable to that. We'd like to be secure in the truth of what we think and believe. And, and yet the confidence of trust is, is a much more uh, humble thing uh, because it, it's a way of saying, here's what we understand and believe at this point. Here's the direction that it's going. Uh, how can we best get from here to there with, with the kind of community that we share with one another that will enrich us both? Um, that, I think that idea of humility and the, the awareness of the partiality of our understanding are key components for responsible theological thinking. Very insightful, Colin. Um, your, your phrase, security of certainty, stood out. I, I think that's really well put. Um, it, and I think ties in kind of to my next question, which is that the church I grew up in tended toward, whether they actually said this or not, I don't recall, but this bumper sticker notion of the Bible says that I believe it and that settles it, as, mm-hmm. as if it's that simple. 
And, you know, sadly, in my view, I think that that is a pervasive mentality that is still prevalent in U.S. Christianity, uh, which I think basically sees the Bible as an answer book. You know, this question or issue arises, let's find the right verse for that, and that will give us the answer not realizing that they're doing interpretation simply by reading the Bible and then applying it to that situation. Um, You know, without giving too much away, I I want our listeners to buy your book after all, but you have a chapter on faith and levels of truth that I I think maybe is applicable here. Could you maybe reflect a little bit on that chapter in light of, as you put it, the security of certainty and this thinking of the Bible as an answer book for for all of our myriad questions? Yeah, certainly. That's a key one, I think. I've actually seen that bumper sticker. I, I know that it exists. I've seen it. Not lately, but I, I do remember when it was prevalent. Around. I, th- I think the the challenge that, that has been a dominant feature of our part of the Christian family, when I say that, I mean the, the evangelical Baptist uh, part of the family that I share with some of you, uh, has, has focused a lot on the Bible and uh, the battle for the Bible, which has dominated uh, certain parts of the Christian family in recent years uh, has, has suffered from a, a lack of, I, I think, this is my diagnosis, a lack of, of willingness to understand carefully just what the Bible is, uh, to, to affirm its truth and, and to claim it as sacred scripture and to see it and understand it and affirm it as God's word are all profound affirmations of faith in the place of the biblical testimony in the the faith journey that we all share. Unfortunately, sometimes we stop at that affirmation and fail to think carefully about the the answer to what it actually is. And uh, this is something that I guess began to emerge in efforts to try to teach courses in the Bible along the way. You don't read the Bible very long or very carefully without realizing that it's a a very diverse testimony, a very diverse group of people across a long period of history, affirming what they experienced God to be doing in their history and telling us about it. They tell us about it by the creation of narratives that that are somewhat historical looking. Uh, They tell us about it in poetry that uh, reaches well beyond the range of what history can, can show. Uh, they tell us about it in, in uh, profound wisdom uh, literature that probes the depths of human life and suffering. They tell us about it in, in a proclamation of an alternative way of thinking that emerges through the covenant faith and the teachings of the New Testament uh, in such a way that, that to, to look at it one dimensionally as a kind of holy writ or divine dictum fails to see the richness of that diversity in, in the testimony and its power. So uh, the, the, uh, the point that you were uh, suggesting about uh, what we all have seen and experienced in the faith, faith family as a, a, a rather one-dimensional understanding of the Bible as the inspired word of God um, benefits from a careful look at, at what it is without diminishing its, its power as a, as a resource for, and a guide for living the faith journey. But recognizing it honestly for what it is as such a mixture of literature that ranges all the way from from mythology to actual chronological records that that are present there 
And all of these are, are united by the fact that they're part of a testimony of what God has been doing in, in history. And so what, what has happened, uh, I think, in, in my mind and in the thinking of, of many with whom I've shared uh, this journey, is that uh, uh, rather than thinking of the Bible as an inspired text, of seeing it as a text produced by an inspired people, and that's a significant difference because that allows then for the differences of worldview, of language, of cultural background, of frameworks, of thought. Um, it doesn't require that it be harmonious in every way uh, as a smooth garment, you know, for one seamless garment. And in its diversity, in terms of what it is, is, I think, the invitation to join that story and, and be a part of it. Uh, it's, it's a way of thinking that the Bible is a testimony that comes to us from the past, but its its story is still being told and every new generation participates in that. So it's not so much a matter of believing what the Bible says as it is seeing what the Bible sees and joining the journey that is guided by that vision. So uh, that's that's kind of uh, where that pattern of thinking and the Bible's place in it has, has figured into, into my thinking about uh, everyday theologians, and I, I don't run into many people who don't get that when they're when they're given the opportunity to think about it carefully. And unfortunately, we've sort of weaponized the Bible, I think, in some of our rhetoric and and uh, crusades, and have uh, put up a barrier to to some people for for thinking about that. An important note to our listeners, we at Good Faith Media are always accepting book proposals. Our authors engage with an experienced team of editors, designers, and marketers to produce and sell books on a variety of topics. So if you have a book proposal you'd like to run by us, head over to goodfaithmedia.org bookstore for more information. That's goodfaithmedia.org bookstore. Colin, as we wrap up our time together, I wonder if you might read for us a sentence or two from your book that you think is critical for listeners to hear, either because it's representative of your book as a whole or because you think it's especially important for folks to hear right now. One, one of the themes uh, in the book that uh, I hope comes through is that, uh, that the theological journey is one that leads in the direction of community that it's not really a matter of just refining my personal perspective uh, so that I have a, a purified version of understanding about what faith means, but that it invites me into a family of faith where I benefit from the journeys of others and others can benefit from mine. And so uh, there's a particular place in shifting from part one to part two of the book when I shift from the keys to some examples of how to, to apply those keys in real situations. It kind of focuses on that. And, uh, uh, I'll, I'll read a couple of paragraphs right quick here. As we have thought about this process and considered the contribution our faith community has made to our growth and nurturing faith, we realize that faith is something of a family affair in the sense that we began to experience faith in the context of a spiritually caring community long before we developed theoretical understandings of what it means. Similar to the love we experienced much earlier than we developed concepts of love, faith is experiential before it becomes theoretical in the theological sense. Faithful stewardship of that personal faith family heritage involves a recognition of its contribution and an awareness of its influence in our formative thinking about what our faith means. Many believers grow beyond the specifics of that heritage as the horizons of life broaden to include realities that were part of that particular context. 
but most retain something of the perspectives, the values, and the beliefs of that earlier experience. Gratitude for the care of one's formative family of faith, even when some of its features are adjusted to express more accurately what one's faith has come to mean, is a mark of faithful maturity and wisdom. Our guest today on Good Faith Reads has been Colin Harris, author of Keys for Everyday Theologians, Unlocking the Doors for Faith-Seeking Understanding. The book, along with more than 100 other titles, is available in paperback at goodfaithmedia.org bookstore, and it will be available as an ebook at either Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Colin, we really appreciate you taking the time to be our guest today. Thank you very much for allowing me to be here.